Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Hello, my name is Martin Hamilton. I'm from Capsticks and welcome to today's podcast. This podcast is one in a series covering hot topics in healthcare. And today we're looking at another highly significant topic, Brexit. And to discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Kate Ling. Kate is the NHS Confederation's Senior Policy Manager at its EU office. Hello, Kate. Hello, Martin. So I wondered if I could start with your own work for, for the Confed. Previously, we have been spending a lot of time influencing the EU organisations, um, in particular the European Commission and the European Parliament, about upcoming legislation that affects the health service. Um, and that involves a lot of work, um, particularly trying to influence um, the upcoming negotiations with our own government about Brexit. So all of the challenges that are facing the NHS, which were there before Brexit, so the demographic pressures, the ageing population, the supply-demand problem, um, all the financial problems and you know, budgetary issues facing trusts, they were all there before. But Brexit adds, a, if you like, a, a new layer, an extra layer of complexity. Can you tell us something about the Cavendish Coalition and, and, and the work that you're doing with that coalition? There's a range of health and social care organisations, a very wide range. I think it's now about 31 organisations who have joined together in a coalition of um, providers and employers and trade unions across the health and social care system. And that's both public and private and the idea is to speak with one voice and to lobby on behalf of NHS and social care um, to government. And the main topics that we're trying to grasp, um, one is that we really need to get a grip on domestic recruitment and retention because we're not sure in the future about the scale of um, migration from um, particularly European Union countries that a very large proportion of health and social care staff at the moment come from the EU and from further afield. And we've traditionally been very dependent on that pipeline. We need to ensure that in future, more and more, we train and retain more of our own at the same time whilst continuing, you know, as far as we can, to attract people from elsewhere. And secondly, that it's really important that we try to keep the staff that we already have from the European Union. And we're lobbying quite heavily, advocating the right for people who are currently working in health and social care to be able to remain post-Brexit, whatever the new settlement between the UK and the EU looks like. And thirdly, looking longer term into the future, although successive governments have been planning to become more self-sufficient, nevertheless, there will always be a need to recruit people from other countries. And we really welcome that. It's a really important injection of talent um, and often people can take that back to their own countries, of course, afterwards. But we really need to be able to maintain that pipeline and to have a migration system in the future where people can continue to come to the UK. And, of course, the other way around, that you know, we also want to be able to export people and give our own um, health and social care staff the opportunity to work in other countries. The Cavendish Coalition, I'd imagine, has a huge stakeholder group. And uh, I understand that the NHS Confederation has just started a survey process on Brexit uh, and its impact on the NHS and beyond. I mean, you mentioned healthcare and social care. 
um, earlier. Uh, so I wondered if you could tell us something about your involvement in that, and where, where the survey is at and, and what it's looking to achieve. Yeah, we felt it was very important that we underpin all our arguments with solid facts and evidence. It's a way of trying to capture information over time. It's not anything enormous or burdensome. The survey went out to NHS employers and providers and also via social care networks to their organisations. And it's asking fairly basic questions like how many staff from other European countries do you currently employ? Have you noticed any trends? Are there more people joining or leaving from the EU? Things like if you're thinking of conducting a recruitment exercise abroad, how is that going? You know, how, how are things changing? And what about staff morale? And also, very importantly, asking what are you doing locally in your own area to foster employment opportunities, you know, to encourage local people to apply for jobs and to develop them in post. And you've mentioned morale a couple of, couple yeah. of times, um, but, but we are hearing stories in the press and the HSJ, all, what feels like all the time at the moment, uh, about the impact of Brexit on the morale of EU staff. What might the longer term impact on staff morale be? And do you have any thoughts about what the system and domestically the system could do about that? At the moment, I think the main problem is the uncertainty because um, all these scare stories about people being afraid that they'll have to go home and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that won't happen. But nevertheless, it's just the fact that people don't know what the situation will be long term that makes it difficult. That if you want to plan for the future, things like, you know, where your children are going to go to school or whether your elderly parents can come and live in Britain, for example, those sort of things, people just don't really know what it's going to look like in future. I'm pretty certain that whatever migration system a future UK government came up with post-Brexit, that they would not want to cut off the pipeline, for example, of um, highly skilled professional staff such as doctors and nurses. What I would be more concerned about is the situation of the, if you like, lower skilled or less qualified staff, because we rely massively on, you know, particularly the social care workforce and also healthcare assistance. You know, there's a large proportion of people from the EU and, of course, from overseas who are really the, the bedrock of the system. At the moment, there's a fast-tracking system to allow EU quali fully qualified staff, such as doc doctors, nurses, midwives, pharmacists, and so forth, um, to have their qualifications recognised. Uh, what do you think are the challenges around that current automatic registration process? On the whole, the, the, that system works pretty well. I mean, it works by and large to our advantage because it makes it easier for professionally qualified staff to move around the EU with a minimum of obstacles. Um, but there have been issues for a long time to do with the fact that because it's fast tracking that EU citizens with the relevant qualifications don't have to pass exactly the same tests and hurdles as people from overseas. And the General Medical Council have for a long time said that they would quite like, I think, to apply the the clinical competence tests that they apply to people, say, from Australia or Canada or Pakistan, to people from the EU as well. So that's something that perhaps could change if there was the opportunity to change domestic legislation after Brexit. It's an interesting point, and employment legislation is, is I think, a key area of scrutiny when we're talking about workforce planning. Um, so far, the Department for Brexit has fully committed to guaranteeing all um, current EU to, to inc incorporate within domestic legislation in 2019 all current EU law um, the, via the Great Repeal Bill. 
that will be uh, put before Parliament in due course. So all current EU employment law to be enshrined in, e in British domestic law. Um, but there's always, there's always a but there, <laughs> because um, things are bound to change. Um, simple point is that if the UK is no longer part of the uh, EU, um, then the UK will be under no obligation to follow what the EU does when it comes to legislation. So I think there will be a, there's bound to be a sort of gradual drift. The transfer of staff for when, when a service is recommissioned, um, currently everybody's bound by 2P on that. Uh, uh, I can't see that changing radically, but there are areas of 2P regulating sort of the transfer. Of, I mean, at the moment, employees step in, that an employer steps exactly into the shoes of outgoing employer. Um, so, some, and some of that's not very popular with employers. So, lobbying there to 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 change aspects of what, what is the acquired rights directive incorporated into the transfer of undertakings regulations. It's going to be a complicated picture in the longer term, but at the moment the legislative picture should should be fairly fixed for the next couple of years, which is an, which is an important message for uh, maintaining the morale of EU staff working in, in healthcare. I think this is maybe a message that hasn't gone out loud and clear enough to, because a lot of people seem to think that things would more or less change overnight after the EU referendum or after Article 50 is triggered and of course really nothing from the point of view of existing NHS or social care employees is going to change for the next couple of years. It's not just about more and more and more of the same. We're not just talking about recruiting more and more doctors, nurses and everything else because that's not feasible, it's not sustainable and it's not the way in which services are evolving. And I suppose part of the uncertainty surrounding all of this is that it's not just about Brexit, it's that the whole of the health and social care system is um, if uh, in transition at the moment and it may be that possibly in the event of a hard Brexit that some of the changes you've suggested or the possibility of making changes to domestic legislation could perhaps be helpful in supporting or underpinning those changes. I mean the current legislation is based on I think perhaps quite some it's quite old-fashioned assumptions. Those rules were devised a long time ago and the world is changing, so I think rules that were appropriate perhaps you know, 30, 40 years ago may not be quite so appropriate now. And, you know, employment law changes anyway. I mean, it's a very dynamic area that, that always reflects the priorities of where we are politically and that there are all these pressure points. But it, make, it, it makes it a fascinating uh, journey for us all, doesn't it? I mean, there are a lot of arrangements which operate very well across Europe at the moment, which I don't think it would be in anybody's interest to unpick. I'm thinking of things like EU-wide rules on um, regulating medicines, blood and um, transplant organs, for example, and services where, particularly when you have rare diseases, and it's a massive advantage to be able to pool expertise and to pool resources across so many different countries. And I see absolutely no need, really, for those arrangements to be um, jettisoned as a, result, as a result of changes in the political structures. And I think those are definitely areas where we see big benefits, um, not only for our health service and social services, but also for other countries. So I think across the EU, those arrangements for collaboration in research um, and in medical innovation, developing new treatments, new drugs, I mean, that is beneficial to everybody.
Caitlin from the NHS Confederation, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Um, no easy answers here for anyone at the moment, and we can only hope that as the Brexit negotiations become clearer, what that means for health and social care will also get settled.